Hi and welcome today to the CU20 podcast. This is a very special recording today. This is a recording that we did via live stream last Wednesday. Uh, the first one of probably a few that we're going to be doing by live stream whilst the COVID-19 uh, pandemic continues to develop and we have to act with our responsibility towards those around us. The title of the sermon that we are listening to today is Flattening the Curve. This is the same as the general advice that we've been given. The, the way that we can help by doing our part is by social distancing and being very vigilant and being very hygienic so that the number of cases don't rise too quickly and the health and hospital systems don't become overwhelmed. Now, I wanted to use the same title because I believe that when we turn to God, we too can experience a flattening of the curve, not of the caseloads, but of the way that anxiety and worry weigh on our heart. It can really rush upon us and escalate very quickly. But when we take the Bible's advice of how to deal with difficult situations, I feel, feel that we have a flattening of the curve that takes place as well that we can remain more calm than we otherwise would, that we can go through difficulties in a far more sustainable and manageable way. So I hope you enjoy the message. Please continue to pray for the world at the moment and let us know if you need anything. If any way we can help or pray with you, please reach out to us. God bless you. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. We're going to start with uh, chapter uh, 4 and 5. We'll read it through all, all once, and then we'll go back and, and kind of go bit by bit through it. So starting at verse 4, here's what we see. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So we're going to start by looking at verse 4 and 5. I'm going to repeat it. <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now what are we going to take away from this today? What we can find here is a strong call said twice. Rejoice in the Lord. And I think that distinction is very important, that our rejoicing should be done in the Lord. And, and so what does that mean? And, and that phrase, in the Lord, can really apply in different ways. But what's important to take out of that is our rejoicing truly is a call to faith. Our joy comes from taking a faith perspective and to live in light of God's presence with us. 
that is to be our, our, the source of our joy and the reason for our joy is because we have God's presence with us. And when we become mindful of this and live in faith that God is with us and that we are in Him in many ways, we're in Him in terms of just life is lived in Him and held together by Him, our future is held by Him, our security is held by Him, uh, our, the, our identity is held by Him. I mean, in all these different ways, we are in the Lord. And so the rejoicing we have is out of this status and out of the security and the list goes on and on. That is how our rejoicing comes out of this faith posture that we've taken. And when we do that, there are two different distinctive ways that Christian character is shown. The first is through a type of hopeful joy. Hopeful in the sense that we are joyful because no matter what's going on in our situation, we do have hope that we know God is going to have the final word. We know that, come what may, He is still in control, and He is trustworthy and good. And so we have hope, and that hope gives us a sense of joy, a sense of optimism about the future, that even if we're in the darkness right now, we know that the darkness will pass, and we know that the light will come again. And so that can give us a sense of comfort and joy out of it. The second thing we are called to be is gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And what this appeal for gentleness is here is, is an appeal for uh, rising above the kind of tit-for-tat uh, justice, justice that we can fall into sometimes of thinking, uh, you did me wrong, I'm going to do, do you wrong in return, or you have to pay me back in full measure for what uh, you've done for me. And this type of retribution principle is something we can actually let go of as Christians and be very generous with our love, generous with our mercy, uh, and in that sense, gentle. We don't have to chase after such a, a dogged sense of, of a legal code because we know ultimately that God is going to work all things out. We're not, we don't have to hope in this lifetime for, for a sense of complete justice. We don't have to hope in this lifetime for a sense of uh, protecting uh, what is fair. We can be generous. And that generosity leads us to gentleness with others, uh, patience with others, and uh, being able to let go of, of slights, let go of anger, let go of um, bitterness, because we know that God will have the final word and that He is here and that He is good. So we can have this type of attitude towards life. And we get the reminder said again at the end of this, these two verses, something we were told in the beginning, but we're told again at the end, of what is the source of all this. And it's said in such a succinct, a beautiful way, but it's so punchy, this, the, the, you know, the sentence is four words long. The Lord is near. That is a hugely packed state, statement. The Lord is near. What does that mean? What does it mean to say the Lord is near? Well, it means at least two things. It means, firstly, that the, the Lord is coming in the sense of His triumph is coming. We know that the final triumph of God is coming. The, 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 the return of Christ, uh, God making all things right, is coming. And because of that, we don't lose hope. Because of that, we know that God has the final word. Because of that, we can... Go forward with confidence in this world. The Lord being near gives us confidence. It gives us assurance that nothing we do will be done in vain because when that day comes, everything will be set right to the way it should be set. 
And so we never lose hope. We never give up because the Lord is near. So that's the first sense of what the Lord is near means, but it means something else as well. It also means that God is near at hand in your life right now, that God's presence is with you, near, as close as your next breath. We have his presence with us now. And that's a huge thing too. To know that we have this supernatural presence of God with us now is also a tremendously comforting thing. And I'll go so far as to say that it actually makes it to the, the spiritual well-being that we can experience is not determined by whether God returns in the ultimate sense tomorrow or a hundred years from now. That is our spiritual well-being is not impinged upon that. It's actually irrelevant to our spiritual well-being because we have this nearness of God with us all the time, we can go forward knowing and being comforted by God each and every day. That's huge. And we can see this application come out first and foremost in the way that we pray. This nearness of God affects the way we pray. And we find a description of prayer or a description of how to pray. Maybe like a, it's like a mini little thesis or a mini little sort of philosophical idea about how prayer operates uh, given to us in verse 6 and in verse 7. And so let's go forward and read those two together as well. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love this little two-verse two uh, summary of what prayer is supposed to be. It's this really punchy little compact statement. Uh, and I know I've said that already about the last thing, but this is also that. There's obviously a lot of anxiety at the moment. Anxiety is rampant all around us. And so what are we supposed to do with this anxiety? How are we supposed to deal with it? How are we supposed to deal with stress as it comes? Are we just supposed to grin and bear it and just ride it out until it's no longer applicable? Uh, waiting for the next thing to hit, waiting for the next thing to hit? No, absolutely not. Uh, prayer is essential and prayer can be absolutely transformative in a time of difficulty. Difficulty in life will happen. It always has happened. It will continue to happen uh, as long as this life remains as it is. And with difficulty comes anxiety because difficulty means pain. Difficulty means uncertainty. Difficulty means that we have uh, an instability and a fragility to life that, I mean, what, what has this taught us? What has this latest thing taught us? To me, it's taught us just how fragile everything is how fragile the economy is, how fragile our, our lives are, how fragile our communities are. Now we can, we can see some beautiful examples of how things can rise up in, in a good way, but what I'm being reminded of in this is, man, just how quickly everything can be taken away. And that causes anxiety. That's a terrifying thing. And Paul is speaking to people here who know what it's like to experience hardships. They are uh, an early church who no doubt were experiencing persecutions, experiencing just general life in the first century world, which was much more unstable than ours, 
far higher death rate than ours, far higher uh, chance of being uh, hurt and, and crippled than us today. Life was much cheaper then than it is today, in, in some senses at least. And so they knew, they know what it's like to experience anxiety. They know that. And Paul himself is right now at this point of writing imprisoned. His life is really not in his own hands. And that causes a great deal of anxiety too. And so Paul speaks as a person who's, you know, you can think of as kind of somewhat of an expert in the idea of anxiety, or at least in hardships. And he's saying, look, I, I can tell you a way to get through anxiety. I can tell you a way that it can become far, far better. And that is to bring all of your concerns to God through prayer, to bring them to God. And when we do that, and we do that in the right way, then we do experiencing a lessening of these anxieties and a peace that comes in instead. When we bring, the reason why this works is because when we bring our concerns to God, we do so, we come to a God who is number one, sovereign, and number two, caring. He is sovereign and He is caring. He has the power to be able to keep all things in control, and He has the love or the concern enough that He wants to do what is best for us. And that makes him the best person to come to. And those are two fundamental facts about God that are so critical for us to understand. That he is sovereign and that he cares. And because of that, this world actually is somewhat safe. It's a safe place. Not that we weren't experiencing sickness and death. Not that we won't see tragedy unfold. But that even in the midst of all these things, we, this is not ultimate reality that we're experiencing. Ultimate reality is held by God. The final word will be, be said by Him. And so when we are mindful of that and we speak these requests to God, speak these petitions or these concerns that we have to God, it builds up hope and it builds up security for us as well. Hope and security come. And I love this quote by M.R. Vincent. Uh, he says this, Peace is the fruit of a believing prayer. Peace is the fruit of a believing prayer. When you pray and you believe that God hears you and you believe in who He truly is, then the fruit that comes out of such a prayer is peace. We experience peace. And when we pray... We're not supposed to just give our requests over to God, but we're supposed to do so with thanksgiving. That is a crucial distinction, that thanksgiving is to be the constant companion of petitionary prayers. That when we tell God what, how we're feeling, and we tell Him what we want, we do so with thankfulness. And we do this in every situation, like it says, in, uh, in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So we are to be thankful in every situation. Now that requires two things of us. The first thing it requires is, it's an obvious one, but it's gratitude. That we are to be grateful about what God has done already in our life. We are to think back as to all the ways He has already blessed us. And we are to, to think and be mindful and grateful of all of those things going forward. What, is, what has He done to show His faithfulness to us in the past? 
And we can list the ways that he's, that he's done this. What is he doing right now in your life that's showing his faithfulness to you? That you can think of ways that that's still going on. To be mindful and grateful for those things is so important because it helps us to not lose perspective. The, the things of this world, as we, you know, we can live with blinders on and whatever is right in front of us can become so huge and overwhelming. And to stop that from happening, we need to be able to break out of that mold and to be grateful for all that's happened in the past and all the things that are still happening today that we can lose sight of. So the first thing to be thankful in, all, in every situation, the first thing it requires is gratitude. And the second thing it requires is submission. And submission is required because sometimes you're going to be in a situation that you don't really understand. You can be in a situation that is not what you wanted it to be. And we're to still be thankful. How are we to do this? There are times when God will fill up our lives with all kinds of things that give us joy, fill up our lives with amazing opportunities, amazing blessings, And there will be some times when God will empty our lives, empty them of the things we want, empty them of the opportunities we desire, empty them of the things that give us pleasure. And we're maybe in some small ways experiencing that right now. God is emptying our lives in different ways. And when that time happens, sometimes we can be really radically surprised by that and and undone. We don't understand what's going on. We don't see any purpose or reason to what God is up to in this world. And so when He empties our lives, we're left reeling and thinking, what is going on? And what the Bible will speak of and what we need to recognize is that when God fills your life and when God empties your life, He's actually doing the same thing in different ways. He's, He's using a different method but he's pointing to the same thing. What God is doing is he's bringing you to himself truly. If he's emptying your life, it's for the reason of bringing you to himself. If he's filling your life with joy, it's another pathway, it's, but it's a pathway it's supposed to be to him. It's a pathway to see who he is and to be grateful for who he is. And when he's emptying your life, it's to show you that He is in control, that He is in charge. You need to recognize Him and listen to Him. You need to trust in Him. You need to be mindful of what He's going. Perhaps He's, there could be a number of reasons as to why He's emptying your life of different things, but the ultimate reason is because He loves you. And that can be hard to grasp. But the reason He's getting your attention, the reason He's emptying your life is to get your attention. And the reason he's getting your attention is because he loves you. I've said this before, but if someone comes and asks me, what is God trying to teach me right now? In 90% of the the cases, I could predictably say that God is teaching you to trust him more. And when he's filling your life or when he's emptying your life, the end result is the same. He's doing it so that you might trust him more. And I know there's a lot of people that are experiencing an emptying right now. And maybe it's hard for you to think to be thankful of what's going on right now. But there are things to be thankful for. We do know as Christians that what God is doing to us is He is helping us to be mindful of Him. 
He's helping us to trust in Him, and He's showing us that He loves us. And that is an important lesson to learn and something that we need to be thankful for, though it may be difficult. And so, we bring these requests to God, a good, competent God who cares. And we do so with thanksgiving, thanksgiving that is born out of gratitude and out of submission to His will. We can bring these requests to Him, and when we do that, then peace guards our hearts. The, the actual language there is peace stands sentinel over your heart and your mind. And this is a peace that cannot be reproduced by any skill or any exercise. It is a peace that leads out of God's presence Himself. And so this peace forms an abiding trust in the midst of storms of life. This peace uh, becomes, it comes from a supernatural place. And it comes in a way that we can't reproduce naturally. But what it causes is that anxiety, which otherwise would spike very quickly in the midst of life's storms, we now have the resources to combat it. We have joy, we have hope, we have peace, we have gentleness. We have these things, and the source of it is the nearness of God. The Lord is near. That is the foundation of all of these principles that we can, these tools that we have, internal emotional tools that we have. And that, that language, standing sentinel over our heart and our mind, it's, it's a military language. It's the idea of a, a soldier standing on God, God. And we have the peace of God, God that stands sentinel, that is a soldier at attention, guarding our heart, guarding our mind. What an amazing imagery that that is. And there's a, a really great book, uh, William Barclay. Uh, he's a fantastic commentator, and his, uh, his little book on, um, on Philippians, he, uh, he has this great quote about... Uh, essentially this perspective that this gives us as Christians. He says this, Belief in God is the only thing which can keep a man from the ultimate despair. Only the sense of God's grace can keep him from despairing about himself. And only the sense of the overruling providence of God can keep him from despairing about the world. God's grace keeps us from despairing about our own condition, and God's providence keeps us from despairing about the, the situation of the world. That is an amazing resource that we have for us as well. The passage goes on with more advice of how to live an internally strong life. And in verse uh, 8, we see uh, part of that advice given to us. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, that, that call is something I find particularly convicting. And I've been praying a lot recently about, essentially my, my, my prayer has been revolving around the central idea of God, what are you doing in this world? And I don't mean that in an accusatory way, but in a very uh, curious way. God, what are you doing in this world? 
because I want to know what God is doing right now and so that I can come alongside him and do it with him. And I think part of the answer that I've been given is that there is a test going on here that we, particularly in the West, have lived lives, my whole adult life has essentially been one that has been characterized by busyness and heavy work schedules and rushing from place to place, from, uh, play, you know, from meeting to meeting, go, go, go all the time. And I'd fallen into uh, a way of excusing myself. The things that I knew were good and right and that, that kind of list, I wasn't always focusing on them because I feel like I never had the time. I didn't have the time to focus on the good things. I didn't have the time to, to you know, bring more of my attention to God. Now I do. I really, we do. We don't have the schedules we had a week ago. We don't have the pressures that we had a week ago. We have the time. And I think the test is God, like God asking us, what are you, you going to do with it? Are you going to actually be redemptive? Like, are you going to have a redemptive attitude about this? I'm going to make the most out of this. Am I, am I, are you going to get deep in the Bible? Are you going to get deep in, in like thinking and reflecting upon the, the important questions of life? Are you going to get deep about really tackling some issues that you've been dealing with for a long time? That we can very easily use this time to just fill it with junk, fill it with shows and memes and all kinds of stuff that will just bide, bide the time until we get back to a fairly thoughtless uh, life again. Or we can do what this verse is calling us to do. We can focus on the right things. The principle of life is garbage in, garbage out. If you are just filling your life with garbage, you will not get anything but garbage out of it. We should let the right things in. In the world around us, it's easy to see how much junk there is out there. So much stuff that has been made ugly by humans in terms of the media that we can consume, the type of toxic ideas that we can believe in, uh, just the different uh, things in life. And, the one thing that physically is not bad to us is the outdoors. We can go outside and we can just be in nature, be around God's creation and use those opportunities to be reflective of things, to slow down. But we can also turn to the beautiful things in this world. There is a lot of beauty in this world. There's a lot of amazing things that we can, that we can learn and discover, new skills to develop, new uh, books to read that are great and life-affirming. Obviously, the, or one of the greatest, the greatest sources we can turn to is the Word of God. Are you going to use this time to read your Bible, to study it, to go deeper into the Word? Uh, you know, we need to, to use this time redemptively. Are you going to use this time to pray? There's a, a, a little saying that I heard a long time ago, and I actually forget the, the source of it. Uh, and I think it applies here, but let me explain it after I say it. But the, 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 the uh, quote is this, God weeps at the things that we laugh at and God laughs at the things that we weep at. So the first part of it says God weeps at the things that we laugh at. I think what this means is the things that we find entertaining and funny in this world are often quite grotesque. They're often very disrespectful, 
uh, meaningless, uh, point, just, just junk. And things that we find so appealing, God finds so abominable and terrible. And we need to take His perspective on these things and to use our time more wisely. And the second thing, God laughs at the things we weep at. And I, they may come across as mean-spirited, and it do, I don't mean it that way at all. When I say God laughs at the things that we weep at, I mean that in a sense of like, when we are so frantic and panicked about things, from God's perspective, He knows the beginning from the end, and He thinks, you don't need to feel this way. You don't need to be so afraid. It's okay. I, I'm okay. Like, everything's going to be okay. And that's His perspective. And we need to gain that perspective. In both senses, we need to adopt that different perspective that God has and to use our time wisely. I mean, I spoke at the beginning about how, um, you know, the, like how I've been feeling the fruit of this type of peace um, in my life in the last few days. Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago at CU20, we preached, I preached on Luke chapter 12, 22 to 34, which is Jesus saying, do not worry. And I remember saying in that sermon how it was my desire to just get up there and just read, just read the passage and just say, that's enough. You know, Jesus has said it perfectly. I don't need to add anything to it. Now, because I'm a pastor, kind of, I'm obligated to do more. But I didn't want to. I wanted to just leave it there and go and sit down because it was so beautiful. And I've, I rediscovered those words today. Luke chapter 12, 22 to 34, where Jesus is telling us not to worry. It's this beautiful sentiment. And three times in that, that fairly short passage, Jesus says, do not worry. Do not be anxious. Three times. I think it's important to him that we don't worry. And I need to know that. I need the word of God flowing into me to have that. And so during this time, Paul is telling you, Whatever is true, whatever is noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Fill your mind with those kinds of things. Redeem the time that we have been given right now. The last, uh, the last thing <clears throat> that we've, uh, the last uh, part that we've been spoken of, that, sorry, that we want to cover today is verse 9. This is Paul saying, Whatever you have learned or received or heard in me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. See, I don't have the guts to say what Paul says here. That whatever you see in me, put that into practice because I'm, I'm far from perfect. I, I would like you to follow me in some ways, but in some ways I think you can do a lot better. But Paul does call... For us to use his life as, as an example. And so we can discover more about Paul in the book of Acts and through the letters that he wrote. And I encourage you to do that. See the type of, you just get a picture of the kind of man he was. A beautiful study that you can do is just try to read through, maybe, maybe just read through the letters of Paul and highlight all of the different things that he's praying for. And highlight the kind of methodology of how he prays the best you can. And, and develop an idea of how Paul prayed because, man, this guy was on to something when it came to a prayer life. And I encourage, like, you'll learn a lot by thinking and, like, discovering how Paul prayed and beginning to implement that in your life. It'll be transformative. 
And we could do that. But I want to go a little bit in a new direction today because I, when I did a bit of research and there is other Christian leaders that have experienced something that has a point of connection to what we're going through today. Uh, I want to turn to some of the writings of some wonderful Christians who have gone through similar experiences to exactly what we're experiencing today and have given advice to people going through it. So there's three people, C.S. Lewis, uh, Spurgeon, and uh, Martin Luther. And I, I, so each, each of them went through something that was similar in some sense to what we're, doing, what we're going through today. So C.S. Lewis wrote uh, uh, some advice. He lived through uh, the birth of the atomic age. And so when the atom bomb uh, came into being, when, when the world at large bore witness to the power of the atom bomb, it caused a great panic in the world. People knew, you know, life is never going to be the same again. Now we have a bomb that is able to level an entire city. And so there was a great sense of panic that came up into the world. Uh, how, how are we going to live? You know, this, this looming threat over our head and people were freaking out about it. Uh, and so, so C.S. Lewis wrote to those people. Uh, well, not to, he wrote, I think it ended up in a newspaper. Uh, and this is what he says. I just took an excerpt out of this. And by the way, all three of these, I'm going to post the links to all three because I found this uh, on uh, the Gospel Coalition uh, website. And so I'm going to post the three links to these three different uh, sort of editorials. Uh, I'll, put, I'll probably just put them in the, um, the comment section uh, once when I get a chance to. But here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, Do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of the situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. You, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. But we still have that. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of a painful and premature death into a world which was already bristling with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes to find us, find us doing sensible human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, but they, may, but they need not dominate our minds. C.S. Lewis stresses, and I think the point of connection here is this, there's nothing actually new about the situation that we're in. Pandemics have happened before. And also, our lives were always fragile. Our economy was always fragile. I understand that we are keenly aware of it at this point, but we must, in the face of this, be determined to continue to live our lives holding the convictions that we have continuing to allow 
ourselves to, to go on in a wise and sensible manner, keeping our mind. And I think that's the critical thing he's talking about here is what are we doing with our mind? Are we keeping it fixed on the right thing? That's what C.S. Lewis wanted from us, to keep our mind fixed on the right thing and to not allow ourselves to be, in his words, uh, whimpering and drawing long faces. We need to, to hold up, pull ourselves together and to go forward. Now, L Martin Luther, uh, the next person, he, uh, he was living in Wittenberg at the time when uh, the Black Plague uh, came back or came uh, it spread into Wittenberg and you know that that's a pretty terrible thing so this was back in 1527 and he uh, kind of wrote and gave explanations as to what should Christians do in this and so in light of a plague coming into a community one of his first assertions was that uh, Christian Christians should be among those who take leadership in the community they should remain in the community until the crisis has passed. And he says, especially pastors must be like the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. So Luther is saying here that you know, we, we as Christians should rise up as leaders in our communities. He goes on to say that Christians cannot abandon our neighbors for loving our neighbor as ourselves includes being certain that they are free from harm. So we, are not, we cannot, uh, or we should not at least, run away when our neighbors are in trouble. But we should be in there. And there's amazing examples of Christians doing literally that. And Luther, obviously one of them, uh, he, he remained in Wittenberg during this time and, and he was uh, helpful in, in bringing peace to this place. So we are to love our neighbors during a time of pandemic. Luther said that Christians who trust in God and minister directly to the dying should not fear boils and infection. For in the end, caring for the sick is like caring for Christ. Jesus said, I was sick and you cared for me. Matthew 25, 36. John wrote that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for others. So he, Luther is pointing exactly back to Jesus, exactly back to the Bible saying, we need to care for people throughout this time. It is the duty of Christians to go above and beyond in caring for those in this situation. And the last person I want to point to is Spurgeon. So uh, Spurgeon uh, was an Engli Englishman who lived sort of in the 1800s. And he uh, was a minister during a cholera outbreak in London that happened in 1854. And it was particularly bad. A lot of people died. And during that time, he had a local ministry there. And he made local ministry his priority. He was an itinerant speaker. He would kind of travel around and speak. He, he cut off all engagements throughout the time. And he stayed in London. He stayed in his community to minister. Uh, and during that time, he dedicated a huge amount of his time and energy, all hours of the day and night, ministering to the sick and to the dying. And what he saw in that was a uniquely powerful opportunity for the gospel. And this is a direct quote from Spurgeon. He says, if there ever be a time when the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. I recollect when I first came to London how anxiously people listened to the gospel, for the cholera was raging terribly. There was little scoffing then. So what, what uh, Spurgeon points out here is that there is a genuine receptiveness to the gospel here that we need to pay attention to. 
people are asking big questions. People are thinking about what does this all mean and how do I go forward and what hope is there. Christians, we have answers to give them. And we need to be bold in this season to let them know that because Jesus Christ has come and He has died and He has brought us through death, He has come through death, we too can come through death as well. That He has done this for us. And that's the incredible thing that we hold on to here. This hope. And this hope is transferable to all because God has come and given a hope for all of us. So we need, and during this time especially, to be reaching out to preach the gospel, to show them the hope that we have for tomorrow. Our strength to live a, a lifestyle that's like this, a lifestyle that's committed to loving the neighbors, a lifestyle that begins internally with not allowing our thoughts to be dominated by fear, which then goes externally to actually take us into dangerous places in order to love or take us into difficult and painful places to love our neighbor and to minister to those who really need it. And then to, to see what God is up to and come alongside it and to use gospel opportunities. That strength comes from God himself. This passage speaks about a life that's internal and external that is lived completely different and is beautiful. And its strength is in the Lord. The life that we have here is in the Lord. And we're equipped, if we do this rightly, to overcome situations that would otherwise ruin us. Situations that would cause us to become disheartened and depressed. Situations that would cause anxiety to overtake us. Situations that would cause the dissolving of communities, the dissolving of friendships. Situations that will cause us to give up. We are able to overcome these things because we have the nearness of the Lord, that the Lord is near, that He is a friend at hand. He carries the burden with us and He is bringing the best of the situation out for us. And we can be very sure of that. This makes our situation right now not only bearable, but actually redeemed. We're able to do something constructive and beautiful with this time as well. Let's pray together and then if you have a question, start putting them in the comments, all right? Let's pray. God, may you help this truth to sink deeper and deeper into us. May this word go out not in vain, but I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, many would be touched and transformed by the words that Paul has written, by the words of Jesus Christ, I ask, Lord, that your Bible would come alive to so many people around the world throughout this time and they might bear witness to the fruit of a believing prayer, that peace that comes. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. My name is Chris and I'm the pastor of CU20. Uh, we are part of People's Church of Montreal. If you'd like to find out more about the group or the church, please visit peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find more information about us, some sermons online, and additional resources for you to enjoy. If you're ever in Montreal, we would love to meet you. If you have any questions, please reach out. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.